0: All right, this is Ricky, and this is Brendan, and you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement.
1: What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lines, head. And folks of different minds, because even though it did not share the pain we share, all that American idea. friends made over arguments, In an early morning buzz,
0: meet an early
1: morning buzz.
0: All right, Brendan. It is August thirtieth. Um, somehow, coming up on the uh, the tail end of summer here. Um, no idea how. Uh, we, yeah, we've gotten from Memorial Day to almost Labor Day this fast. But um, exciting times. So a week out from the Mass State Primary and some other primaries that are uh, that are will be coming up here. And uh, but I'm guessing that's not the only thing we're going to talk about today. So what do, what do we got for the people?
2: That's right. For our Massachusetts listeners, we will get into the Massachusetts primaries fairly briefly towards the end of the episode. But the big news this week, Ricky, is that our guys Dalton and the sheriffs are playing at the at new MGM Theater at Fenway Park this Saturday. So I assume that's what we're going to spend most of the episode talking about. I I think that that would be what most people would be interested in. All right. Well, just briefly say you don't know who they are. Brian Scully, the lead singer of Dalton the sheriff, does our theme song that opens and closes the episode. And he was on this podcast, actually, about a year ago at this time to talk about mask mandates and the music business and all of those sorts of things. Uh, but 20 bucks, new MGM, Benway, if you listen to this before Saturday, September 3rd, it'd be worth checking out the venue, giving these guys a listen. So uh, that's my pitch for that. But the real news of the week is that President Biden dropped the somewhat expected, somewhat unexpected bombshell that he was going to sign an executive order canceling portions of student debt. And so we are going to get into all the aspects of that from policy to the economic and legal implications of it. And that will be the the main part of the episode. But before we get into all of that, Just a reminder for everyone out there that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over Cannon Hill Woodwork. And you know they've been building handcrafted, high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Imagine that most people know how to spell cannon at this point. But just a reminder that it's cannon with two N's. Uh, You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. And Ricky, as we get to the end of summer, as you mentioned, you, I believe, just had a nice little weekend down the Cape. But I was wondering... What do you think the top holiday destination is in the forest?
0: I don't know, Brendan. What is it? Well, you got to go to the beech trees, Ricky. <laughs> That's good. I was at a at a a, a local watering hole called the beech Tree recently. Oh, well, yeah, very maybe, apropos.
2: Maybe you had too much fun at the watering hole and you couldn't you couldn't put two and two together there. <laughs>
0: It's entirely possible. All right. Without uh, without further ado.
2: So just to go over President Biden's plan, briefly, um, under President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, borrow- borrowers can qualify for up to $10,000 in student loan forgiveness, and recipients of Pell grants are eligible for an additional ten thousand dollars in forgiveness. So either ten thousand for all borrowers, or up to twenty thousand for borrowers who were recipients of Pell grants. Those borrowers are limited to income adjusted adjusted gross income of under one hundred twenty five thousand dollars per year, or for a married couple two hundred fifty thousand dollars per year. So it's it's going to people that are not in the really the upper upper echelon of, of tax brackets. The White House, in unveiling that plan, estimated that roughly 43 million borrowers would be eligible for student loan forgiveness, and about 20 million of those borrowers could have their debt completely wiped out. Uh, it's a massive policy, in, in a lot of ways, it's, I believe, going to deliver like the singest, the single largest discharge of education debt ever, and provoked a lot of reactions. So. Ricky, when President Biden announced this last week, what were some of your thoughts?
0: Oh, man, I had, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I I feel like I've felt a a lot of ways about this and a lot of different ways about this over time. Um, I guess I start off by disclosing that sometimes it feels a little bit, um, I don't know, hypocritical is not the right word, but, you know, I I was fortunate enough between scholarships and help from my parents that like, I didn't leave my undergrad with debt. I still carry some debt from my master's programs, but that's, you know, largely on me at, at this point. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because this has been on the sort of progressive agenda for like a long time, but and we've talked about this, like personally, from a progressive standpoint, I guess I had a lot of problems with it. We, you know, you know, I think it's well advertised the income disparities between college educated versus not college educated um, are pretty high. And so, and, and that's, and that's on average, obviously everybody's individual situation is different, but um, there is something that to be said, but unless you're, you know, you're sort of lucky and you start your own business as someone who didn't graduate college, like there's almost like a de facto ceiling on earnings um, for, 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 people who didn't, um, who didn't graduate college, which is, is kind of perhaps like besides the point, but, but because of that, you know, a lot of this feels like, um, that it, it, it will come at the expense of taxpayers who are everybody college educated, not college educated, but it's going to benefit mostly people with either high earnings or high earnings potential or higher earnings potential, which, Um, You know, I think from a progressive standpoint can actually be a bit problematic. Um, But at the same time, you know, the government does hand out money to all sorts of different interest groups and special interest groups with tax breaks and things like that. And so I don't necessarily view this as all bad or all good. I think my primary concern is that it doesn't address the cost of college so it doesn't do anything for the forward looking. And it's kind of like a moment in time. If you happen to have this debt and you happen to be uh, not, you know, earning over 125K yet, you get to take advantage of it. Great. If you like somehow just got a promotion, you're at 126K, it's no longer for you. Or if you just paid off your loans. You know, there actually there is a little bit of a provision. I think it goes back. It's like backdated to 2020. So if you just paid off your loans, you might be able to get some of it back. But so if had you been doing it in the early 2000s or the mid 2010s, you might be out of luck. And so there's there's certainly things about it, um but that are, you know, troubling or you may find or feel unfair. Um, but I think as with most government legislation there there's always something that doesn't work for everyone so i guess yeah i'm conflicted about it i don't think it's a broader scale solution for anything i'm worried about the fact that it it does tend to benefit people who in the long run should be better off than people who you know more well off from a financial standpoint than people who didn't go to college or who like chose not to go to college because of the prospect of this of taking on this kind of debt And yeah. But at the same time, I know this kind of debt is crippling. It's very difficult to feel like you're getting anywhere if you know every paycheck, a large portion of it is going to pay down um, some type of loan of some sort. So there's a uh, yeah mixed emotions. What is that? I don't know. I, I went all over the place. What what, what were uh, what were your thoughts? But that's fair because it is complicated and. Like you
2: alluded to, this was a fringe idea 10 or even five years ago. And it's a huge credit to progressives who I think in a lot of ways have felt a little bit left out of the Biden administration that has focused so much on what the moderates in Congress and President Biden, who is more of a moderate by nature, most of the policies that have been passed have been geared towards the more central moderate wing of the Democratic Party. This isn't. This is something that, and whether you like it or don't like it, it's a huge credit to Senator Warren. I, I know that other people were on board with this. Senator Sanders, Senator Schumer were other people that I can name top of my head, but it, it re- this really feels like this was a Senator Warren thing that she was beating the drum on for a long time and then got passed. And so for, for the progressive wing of the party, this is incre- like, it's an incredible moment for them of a long year of working to get ideas into the mainstream and Senator Sanders has done this with like a number of things, but uh, this is, uh, this to me at least feels like very much Senator Warren's baby. And so, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a credit to them for getting it to the mainstream where it polls generally pretty well and is able to be passed by a rather moderate president. With that said, it's also not, it wasn't necessarily welcomed with open arms across the rest of our elected officials and I think there's certainly like you can caveat that with our elected officials tend to be of a certain kind of people whether it's upper class, largely white what what have you uh, but I, I do think it was interesting obviously almost to a person Republicans opposed that this move but a lot of more mainstream Democrats so whether it was um, Senator Mastro from Arizona or Senator Bennett from Colorado or Representative Ryan from Ohio or Davis from Kansas. it's just mainstream Democrat after mainstream Democrat seem to come out and say that this is not the way it should have been done and not what they would have done, particularly those people, like I say, in whether it's Maine or Kansas or Ohio that are representing people that's not to generalize, but maybe are were more likely not to go to college or maybe we took took out loans to go to trade school or took out loans to buy a truck to start the carpentry business or to buy tools to start a plumbing business and all, all of those things where like the backbone of our economy in a lot of ways and uh, people that we deemed essential workers who are taking on debt whether it's through trade schools or through just taking on their own debt to finance the tools they needed to run their businesses, aren't going to have a hope of getting those loans forgiven. It just, it does feel to your point, like this is targeting a very, and obviously 43 million people is not small. Like that's, it's like, it's a big part of the American population. So I'm in some ways I'm like kind of talking about both sides of my mouth, but we're talking about a a self-selecting portion of the American public. And if we want to be really cynical about it, we're we're talking about a lot of young voters that are going to be impacted by this. And we're talking about a lot of racial minority voters that are going to be impacted by this. And who do those voters tend to vote for? They tend to vote Democrat. And so in a lot of ways, like you said, this is really of a moment because like you're only, like you said, you're only getting this wiped away potentially with one swoop one time for this, this moment, there's no guarantee. In my opinion, hopefully it doesn't happen again in the future. It's not retroactive to the, to the big past. And so it, it does feel a little bit cynical that like, oh, right before the midterms, I'm going to make this policy change. And I don't know if you want to get into this. I'm not even sure that Biden has legal authority to do
0: this. <laughs> well, uh, I think we've seen in the past that executive orders are, con- or, you know, frequently push the boundaries of what should be and shouldn't be legal. Um but yeah, I, I I think maybe it is worth spending some time on like who this is going to help. And yeah, if we want to be cynical about it, like a little bit of an energizing uh, kind of one segment of the population, one segment of the Democratic vote, Democrat, like largely democratically voting population that um, that, you know, yeah, that this is like a free soda in the in the in the in the cafeteria yeah. no, like you yeah. know what i mean like yeah. there there is i think i i think we would be naive not to recognize like an element of that and certainly like this younger college educated uh portion of the democratic party that is probably more right like more towards ocasio cortez than they are towards a, a someone like joe biden and we're kind of dragged along kind of kicking and screaming when the alternative was another four years of Trump. Right. So, but they, you know, for, in many ways they were upset that they didn't get rid of the filibuster, didn't do a lot of other things to kind of get some other high ticket progressive priorities through. But this is, you know, if it goes forward is definitely going to be something that when people go to the polls, uh, this in the fall, they will hope they, you know, you would think that they would remember and, and perhaps even into 2024. Um, so, so there is that, I, I think, yeah, I think it's interesting when, when we talk about sort of like uh, how this could help potentially like racial minorities or, um, yeah, it, it's like, I think we know the disparities of the college population, right? Like is not a very heavily diverse population at most schools. Um, And so I, yeah, I, I would be curious to see how many, like what the actual breakdown is. Cause my feeling is it would be a lot more middle income white, white people are going to be the, like the large, largest share of, of beneficiaries of this not to say that there's no uh that there's no reason or that that that's not that that should for some reason not be a reason to move forward with a policy but i think it is interesting that a, like a lot of progressives are touting who this is going to help and i think the reality is we still have a long way to go in terms of like attrition into colleges um for or those people before we can say like, oh, this yeah, you know, we're going to wipe away a lot of their debt. And then I guess the last thing I'll say is that this is federal debt and a lot of like the private loans that people took out, this is not going to impact. And those are often the most predatory um, with the highest interest rates. So. Right. And
2: to be fair to Biden, it's not like he has any control over like the, the private predatory interest rates. Right? So this is pretty much all he could do, but I do want to come back to the, the, that this, this policy, this, forgiveness is going to particularly help uh, racial minorities in this country, because I think that was one of, if not the main reason, that a lot of progressives pushed this policy. And quite honestly, that's a rather compelling reason to me. And so I just want to kind of go through some statistics, and this probably isn't going to surprise you, Ricky, but this is, uh, since 2015-16, the percentage of people enrolled in college by race that borrowed money from the government. Asian Americans, 44%, white Americans, 68%, Hispanic Americans, 70%, black Americans, 86%. And the amount borrowed increases by race. So Asians borrow the least, whites, second least, Hispanics, blacks borrowed the most. And then, as you can imagine, over time, the amount they owe actually increases almost like disproportionately. So over time, five years out, 10 years out, 15 years out, black in particular, but also Hispanic college graduates tend to owe way more money than white and Asian college graduates for all the reasons that anybody listening would know that there are still barriers, there's still systemic racism in terms of employment opportunities, in terms of housing. And so like all of these reasons make it more difficult for black and Hispanic college graduates to pay back their loans. So there doesn't seem to be much doubt that black and Hispanic college graduates owe way more money than white and Asian college graduates. The problem is, and this is why and again, I'm glad this didn't happen, but like this is why senator warren she wasn't asking for ten thousand dollars to be forgiven. She was asking for fifty thousand dollars to be forgiven because that's the start the, the kind of thing that can have a real impact on uh, the racial wealth inequality that exists amongst college graduates in particular and amongst racial groups in general in this country in terms of like the the wealth gap. So $10,000, it's like this weird medium where it doesn't quite make anybody happy, where like the $10,000, it's going to wipe away, as the White House says, maybe 20 million Americans' debt. That's largely going to be like white and Asian graduates who have paid back most of their debt because of just kind of like natural advantages that they have living in the United States. And so like, obviously, this will also help Black and Hispanic college graduates but not to the extent that progressives would have wanted. And so it's it's like that like I said, that weird middle ground where it if one of the goals of this was to help reduce the racial wealth gap, I don't really see this policy doing that. And so it's it, it's just tricky like so what are we doing? We're just trying to give away now it really just seems like we're just prioritizing any college graduate over non-college graduates, which again, I don't begrudge anybody like getting a deal from the government. It's the same way I don't I didn't begrudge like People, when when they sent out the, what were those checks they sent out uh, the last couple of years? The stimulus checks. The stimulus checks, right? Like I took the check, like, and and if I have the opportunity to get some of my, like my, my loans from my degrees forgiven, I'm going to do it. It would, be, it would be stupid not to. So I don't begrudge anybody for getting money back from the government. Like you said, we pay for things that benefit other people in our country all the time. That's just what, what being part of a country is. But it just this policy doesn't seem to make a ton of sense in terms of accomplishing the goals that originally that was set out to accomplish.
0: Yeah, I mean, so just to go back to, I think, I think some of those statistics are that you unveiled are, are, are definitely illuminating. And um, and I, I think interesting in light of this policy, right, like I think you said, 86 percent of black college graduates like have debt when they leave college compared to 60 something percent of of white college graduates but i think the problem is that only i think it's like 10 or 12% of the entire us college population are students of color or are are maybe black americans and then probably another 12 to 15% hispanic right so like even though they may disproportionately carry the debt they are not necessarily the, like the largest, uh, by, by sheer volume carriers of, of debt. And like you said, the $10,000 maybe on a $50,000 balance is nice. You're not going to turn it down, but it's not really going to make a dent. Um, whereas yeah, $10,000 on a $12,000 balance is all, all of a sudden gonna, gonna really move the needle for you. So, so that there is, there's is definitely that, um, that aspect, I think, yeah, the, on the, on the favoring college grads versus non-college grads, I think we have like all sorts of, as as you were pointing out, but like you know, farm aid and you know favor- that favors farmers over non-farmers, right? But like we seem as a society to recognize that it, it's helpful, even if we personally don't farm or have no interest in farming, that there is a a strong thriving like agricultural community, and I think. I think you could easily make the same argument for college educated people. There are certain jobs that do require a higher level of education. Not to say that, not that all of the jobs do, but I think for our society, I, and we often talk about like the backbone being the um, essential workers and essential is in that name for a reason, but there are um, a lot of things about the way that our economy has grown that kind of is is predicated on people having certain specialized skills that that require college education. And and even for those that don't write the arts and stuff like that, I think are still very important for just American culture uh, on the whole.
2: Yeah, I would agree with all of that. I want to come back to a point that you briefly touched on earlier, where as nice as this is for millions of people, it doesn't address the root causes of the issue, which are spiraling out of control, college tuitions and, and costs. And that's frustrating to me because this just seems, again, like a politically expedient band-aid that President Biden is currently slapping on. And again, I, I'll keep repeating, I don't begrudge anybody that's going to get money back. That's fine. But like, if you if you really wanted to take on the issue, just throwing hundreds of millions of dollars of federal taxpayer money at it 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 just feels like uh, like I don't even know what the analogy would be like trying to like trying to like plug like a like a massive gap in a sinking boat all right you throw you just try to like plug it with your hand or something like that it's just it's not going to work for very long and that's frustrating to me and I guess I want to talk about the root issues of that because as everybody knows college costs have been like rising almost exponentially over the past few decades. I think all of our parents who went to college could probably point to, I was able to either commute and work from home or I was able to work a side job or I was able to pay for this, my college tuition with money that I I worked for over the summers or whatever. Like you could point, I mean, I get Senator Warren's emails all the time and she loved to tout it was $50 a semester to go to her college in Houston. But now, obviously, like, here in Boston, almost every college in the last year raised their tuitions by three to four percent, and now many, if not most colleges are po- approaching eighty thousand dollars a year. and I went to private college like not that long ago, <laughs> you know, like no, I'm old, but I'm not that old. And it was like forty thousand when I went. It's almost doubled in the last decade, which it seems impossible, but it's that's what I'm saying. it's growing exponentially and so I think one of the reasons for that, at least in my opinion, I know there are a lot of reasons for it, is that the government got involved in these loans at all. So it's probably not going to shock you that I think that government intervention here has caused most of these problems. So for a long time, if you wanted to go to college, you had to be able to pay for it, obviously. If you couldn't pay for it, you had to go to the bank and get a loan. Banks were only giving out loans to people that they felt could pay their loans back because banks didn't calculate a risk here. So what happens? The government says, like, we need more college graduates. We need more people going to college. So the banks are like, well, I'm not giving money to just anybody if we're not going to get the payback. So what does this government do? They say, like, we'll guarantee these loans. So the government now has gotten involved in the system. The banks say, great. Like, why would now what I'm always I'm guaranteed to get paid back no matter who I give loans to. Fine. I will give loans to everybody. And so it's almost like the housing bubble where anybody could get a mortgage 15 years ago. Didn't really matter. And it was that same type of thing where now colleges are looking at it and being like, oh, anybody can get a loan? Well, why wouldn't I increase the number of students I take? Why wouldn't I increase the tuition for it? Because if students can just take out more and more money that the banks are getting paid back anyway, they're going to pay to us. And it just keeps growing. And that's why tuitions keep growing. And to me, it's like, because the government's involved, we haven't allowed the market to solve the problem. If the government wasn't involved at all, we would go back to a system where you're only going to college if you can pay for it, and you might only be able to pay for it if The bank's willing to give you a loan. The bank's not willing to give you a loan. You can't go to college. So what does college have to do? They have to become more competitive. They have to give out more aid. They have to reduce, they have to increase scholarships. They have to reduce the number of students they're taking, which would again, allow market efficiency. Uh, So that's kind of where I'm coming at it. Especially you have these schools like Harvard has what $54 billion endowment. Yale's got 30 billion. If, if, if the government stopped guaranteeing loans, you're telling me Harvard still couldn't take whoever they wanted. It just feels like they don't have to now because the government's doing it for them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I think the market efficiency argument is a little bit too rosy in terms of I think a we we know who's deemed like a responsible borrower. In in general, there have been just tons of historical problems around uh, people who are uh, of different races, getting equal access to capital to do these types of things. So all like without any type of intervention, you're probably looking at a situation where you're further widening the disparities of who can and who can't go to college. Yeah, Can I come back on that? Cause I think that's a really good point that I thought of too. And so that would just
2: to reiterate what you just said is that if we go back to that system because of we know systemic inequalities and how money has been traditionally and car- continues to currently be lended, we're going to have fewer minorities who are getting loans that enable them to go to college. Do you think we're at a point as, in a society, particularly in the higher education space, where colleges would recognize that and would be more willing to cover those types of potential misuses and or discrimination, discriminatory practices in the system where, like, Harvard, and I know I keep coming to Harvard, not every college is Harvard, but could admit students like in a need blind basis and cover anybody that couldn't get a bank loan? Like do you think we've reached that point in society where people be like, yeah, I know that could be an issue. And so I'm going to go out of my way to make sure that I have extra aid money, extra scholarship money, extra loan money for minority
0: students. Uh, I mean, I think you keep coming back to Harvard because Harvard is, you know, one of the few that could definitely do that. Um, I think these elite institutions, probably the top 50 in in the United States could should be able to handle that but if you look at where the majority of people are going to college like a lot of those colleges are kind of operating on a shoestring budget I think it's it's definitely fair to say that like there's more money out there so there's uh, more appetite to increase tuition to get those higher tuitions but the cost like these colleges aren't running the way that they used to right like they're running these high power you know specialized like laboratories. They've got all kinds of courses that they maybe only had like a couple in the past that, you know, that they're, I think colleges are offering a much richer experience today than they were 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And part of that has to be reflected in in the tuition that they're taking. That's not to say that I don't find $80,000 a year for a single person. Absolutely absurd. Like I think that there is like a middle ground, but yeah, I mean, i I personally don't, I th- I think that there are too many colleges out there that would have to start looking at who are the kids that I know that could pay and not only pay, but pay for four years, right? Like when I had to get an apartment in college, I couldn't, if I was going off campus, I had to get my parents to like co-sign and guarantee, right? Like, I th- I would imagine that that's how a lot of these loans are going to be given out. So even if they're not discriminatory by nature, they're only you know it it still ends up because of the s- systemic inequalities being discriminatory one way or the other. I'm I I don't I don't disagree that I that I think like the there should be some more oversight in the in. And I think Obama was trying to push some of this stuff, right? Like he he was asking colleges that were going to be recipients of federal aid to like show that their graduates had like a chance of getting like a job afterwards or like, you know what I mean? That there was some return on this investment that the government's making so that there is some reasonable uh, reason to believe that some of these loans could be paid back. I think that there um, that there is work to be done, but I I do see a role for the government here. I think one of the things that was really interesting that Biden had initially pushed and then abandoned within like 60 days of office was something like free community college. Basically making it possible for anybody who wants to removing any kind of financial barrier to attending university level courses. And I think that something like that, like I would have much rather seen money go towards something like that. And then possibly some type of debt restructuring. I think also, yeah, c- certain people have insane amounts of debt. And I think we should be able to deal with that in a much uh, more rational way than, than a one-time, um, than like a one-time forgiveness. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah, like you said, it's a complicated issue.
2: Yeah, I'm not done with it. Cause I think you just brought up another great point that I would love to see, more of and this is where states in particular but the federal government to a certain extent has stopped investing in our public education higher level public education at the same levels that they did and there's reasons for this and it's a complicated reason because like in a state like massachusetts for example more and more of the state budget is dominated by health care because we have a state system of universal health care which brings a ton of benefits no doubt But every year, that slice of the pie gets bigger. And so it's not that the slice of pie going to the UMass college system is getting smaller, but it's not increasing at the same rate as inflation and other things are. And so it's now costing more and more money to go to the flagship state universities, to go to the community colleges that we have here. And that's pushed a lot of people into taking on debt just to go to those colleges, where I still think, I, I respect the point that you made, but like I went to Trinity College, it was a private college in Connecticut. Now it costs, I think I said, something close to $80,000 a year. It's not worth that. It just isn't. And if Trinity was forced to like fund that on their own, they wouldn't. They get fewer applicants and they would have to make huge changes to what they would be able to do. Um, but every student should be able to go to a state university, to a community college, and not be forced to take on massive amounts of debt. And that's another thing where again, like a lot of that's on the state level. So this isn't the Biden administration's fault, but when we want to address like root causes of problems, that's where we need to be spending our money. Because like you said, it benefits Massachusetts or any state to have a lot of college graduates for their economy. It's one of the reasons that Massachusetts economy has traditionally been one of the top in the country, because we have so many college graduates that want to like stay and live and work around here. It's a huge benefit to us, which is why even if you don't go to college in Massachusetts, it's one of those things that you pay taxes for because it it benefits the state as a whole. And so like, to your point, I don't know like what authority federal governments have to make like community colleges free. I wouldn't go that far, but to make them affordable, I'm totally on board with something like that. And would be, as you said, way more on board with that than just like wiping away debt temporarily.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we could, we, we certainly could go go on about this issue. I'm, I'm not sure if you have any, any parting any parting thoughts i think i think maybe my the one i was thinking about or sort of coming back to like what you were saying for for the people for whom the ten thousand dollars of debt is a drop in the bucket i feel like it's like split into two camps there's like obviously lawyers and doctors who uh are in school for you know multiple years after university, that are racking up you know multiple six figures of debt, but most of those are expected to go into a high earning profession. That like over time, it's going to be a sound investment. Um, I think one of the things that was interesting about like some loan forgiveness programs that were trying to encourage people to go into Either public service or work for the government. Um, how do you feel about those programs? And is that something that the government should be trying to figure out ways to to sort of funnel people into into that into those types of uh, work through through this kind of um, loan forgiveness? Yes, I love them. Again, I would take the
2: government out of the student loan system in general and so like therefore like in my ideal world this wouldn't happen but assuming that the government is involved in the student loan system i think it's a great idea to encourage people this is something that we've been beating around offline for a while and maybe we'll do a segment on this at some point but there's a massive teacher shortage across the country in public schools giving this these are the type of like carrots that i really like ricky we've talked about this in the context of like and like um like electric cars and energy and um like sustainable energy, those type of things, where it's like, I don't want to force people to do anything. But if I can give people an incentive to wipe away student debt that the federal government gave you because you're working on essentially behalf of the federal government in like public schools, then yeah, I, I love stuff like that. And we do need to be encouraging more people to get into public sector jobs anyway. It's it's become less and less at all levels desirable to work those type of jobs. So if yeah, if the federal government's going to be involved, I love stuff like that. Same. I think we can agree on that. All right. Sorry. I know. (laughs) I feel like you're really trying to wrap this up and I appreciate (laughs) that. And for all the people out there, they're like, keep it under an hour. Looking at you, mom. Uh, I, I apologize in advance, but I do want to come back to the legal argument because one of the reasons that Biden was dragging his feet for a year and a half at this point was that there was debate over whether he can do this legally. And there's obviously still debate about it, but last year he said, quote, I don't think I have the authority to do it by signing a pen, by signing the pen. Uh, and last year, um, Speaker Pelosi also said, quote, people think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone, he can delay, but he does not have that power. This has to be an act of Congress. And I mentioned several senators before, but um, Senator Masto from Arizona said, I don't agree, quote, I don't agree with today's executive action because it doesn't address the root problems. Um, and well, I guess the my, my point here is that President Biden has promised this, but there's no guarantee it's going to happen. I think it's definitely going to be challenged in the courts. It's whether or not it's the the court challenges are successful. I think it's interesting. Um, Obama's former legal counsel, Charlie Rose, said in a private memo that, quote, if the issue is litigated, the more persuasive analyses tend to support the conclusion that the executive branch likely does not have the unilateral authority to engage in mass student debt cancellation. So we'll have to see. Uh, Certainly, I if it goes to the courts and it works its way up to the Supreme court, given the makeup of the the Supreme court, I can't imagine that they are going to allow this type of executive power to stand. But so I I do think this is, in some ways, this might be uh, much to do about nothing, but we'll have to see obviously how it all plays out over the next couple of months.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I guess well, now I've got a few, few other thoughts. Like I, I would be, I mean, I think you expected all, most, if not all Republicans come out against this, but I wonder if it is like really a hill for anybody to die on. Like, do you think you're really, you know, are, are there so many people that are going to be feeling aggrieved uh, at a policy like this, that you are going to really win over some additional voters or, I mean, support. I, I think, I don't, I don't think anybody feels strongly enough, um, from like a principled standpoint that, that they're really just going to go out on a limb to fight this. And I, so, yeah, I I would be, I would be interested to see um, how this plays out. Quick, quickly on that. I also,
2: I, I disagree that people don't feel principally offended by this. I think a lot of people would like to, I do think it's interesting because to get into like legal stuff. You need to have standing to bring a suit in court, which means that you need to show that you have been like wronged, by like this decision. And so it's interesting to think like who has really been wronged by it? Like you might not think it's fair if you already paid off your loans or if you took out loans and didn't go to college. You might not think it's fair, but have you really been wronged by it? I'm not sure. So I think that's one of the pushbacks on the Biden administration's end being like, there's nothing that we did that harmed anybody enough to bring a suit against
0: them. All right. Well, maybe we can leave it there. Fair enough. I'll let it go.
2: (laughs) So, Ricky, as you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we are now a week away from the Massachusetts state primaries. It's one of the later primaries across the country, which I have some feelings about. I don't know if you do as well. But it's been interesting. You watch the news over the past few months, and there have been so many primaries that are the focus of media attention and millions and millions of dollars. And then Massachusetts, you look at our primary slate, and there's there's really not a whole lot going on. Uh, We have no races for Senate. The primaries for Congress, none of the nine Democratic incumbents are being challenged. There are a few Republicans running. There's only one competitive race In the Republican primary for Congress, Republicans aren't even running people in in several other races. So there's really only a a few races to keep an eye on. Uh, We do have the the race for Massachusetts Governor. Current Attorney General Mara Healey is going to is running largely unopposed. Although uh, State Senator Sonia Chang Diaz will be on the ballot, she suspended her campaign a couple months ago. So there's not a huge Democratic primary for governor. There is an interesting. Democratic, I mean Republican primary for governor between Jeff Deal and Chris Doty, and maybe we can talk about that. Another one of the interesting races is for the attorney general, which Mar Healy's gonna has vacated in her run for governor. And there's an interesting on the Democratic side, interesting primary between Andrea Campbell and Shannon Litz Reardon. and so to me, those are really the two main races worth talking about in depth. But what what are your what are your thoughts on week out from the primaries?
0: Yeah, I I feel like yet again I really wanted to do more homework than I ended up doing before I I turned in a mail invalid. I know that you're much more of a proponent of of walking in. I am <laughs> walking yes. into the polls physically, but um, I enjoy the comfort of voting from my from my own home and and also being able to do a little bit of cheat sheet research while I'm uh, <laughs> while I'm doing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the lack of races here in Massachusetts isn't all that surprising, um, just given kind of the Democratic stranglehold on the party. And then also like something that we talked about a little bit last week, like there's uh, there's like a little bit of the the Democratic machine at, at work here as well. Like, I can't imagine that there aren't people out there who feel like they would uh be better suited in Congress than some of our congressmen and women. But there's kind of like an unwritten rule for the most part that, that, you know, we don't do that, that kind of primary um, challenging. We've had a couple in in recent memory, like the Ayanna Pressley's and of the world, um, who now is like a mainstay in Massachusetts politics. But like at the time, it was like a little bit uh, controversial because she unseated uh, was a Capuano, right? have been around for forever um so so there is a little bit of that um i personally did something that i'd sort of long been talking about and in part because of the republican primary i decided as an unenrolled voter in massachusetts to pull the republican ballot so while it took me out of the, i I knew you were coming around (laughs) (laughs) Not of course not for the reasons that, that Republicans might hope. And I'm I'm actually hoping I'll skew a little bit of the voter data a little out there. But um yeah, because of because of this Republican primary for governor, um I'm much more interested in uh well, in the in the in the types of Republicans like Chris Doty and and probably more interested in keeping out the types of Republicans like Jeff Deal. So maybe you could talk a little bit about um about these two candidates. Cause I think, yeah, like you said, on the on the Democratic side, for governor at least it's kind of uh Maura Healy, the former attorney general, is is basically the de facto nominee at this point.
2: And she is likely to win the governorship in November. She is polling some very similar kind of 60-40, or if, if not greater, maybe even mid-60s to mid-30s over both Deal and Doty. And so this might be some exercise in futility. But like you and I have said repeatedly over the course of the last almost two years at this point, we prefer competitive elections. And we prefer two legitimate candidates where even if the candidate you want loses – you're okay with the backup candidate. And that to me seems why you pulled the Republican ballot to vote for Doty because why, while you might in the general vote for Healy, if Doty pulls an upset win, that's maybe a guy you could live with. And so I'll just briefly touch on, on who these guys are. Jeff Deal is probably the more familiar name to people in Massachusetts. He was a state rep uh, out of Whitman from 2011 to 2018. In, eight, in 2018, he gave up his seat to run for Senate. He was the Republican nominee out of that primary, which was a competitive primary, as I am well aware. And he then got demolished by Senator Warren in the general, which we expected. And as someone who worked for a more moderate Republicans campaign in that primary, that was our main argument is that like, look, to the Republican base, you might love Jeff Deal, but he has no shot in a general election against Senator Warren, and he didn't. And that is certainly my personal feeling about him in a general election against Mara Healy. Healey. Uh, he is a well-known supporter of Donald Trump, and that's where the Massachusetts Republican Party has been for the last six years at this point. He has the endorsement of the former president and has echoed many of his claims about the 2020 election being rigged. Um, He does, he's criticized Governor Baker. He actually jumped in the race before Baker even said that he wasn't going to run for a third term. And he criticized his, Governor Baker's response to climate change and COVID and the mask and vaccine mandates. Um, And he's, he's one that, one of his arguments is that like, he has a little bit more of a record. He most famously likes to tout that in 2014, there was a proposed gas tax increase on Beacon Hill that. He was one of the people that led that fight to, to get that rejected uh, on the hill, um, and so he does have a, a legislative record to run on. Um, in some ways, Chris Doty is more like he's in the Governor Baker mold of not really wanting to get involved in like national politics or some of the hot button issues that Deal is running on. But to be fair, he's more conservative. He holds more conservative views than Governor Baker does. He's more. I would say traditional, moderate Republican than even Baker is. Deal has one of his main things over the course of, of this campaign has been like that he has a record and Doty does not. Well, that's because Doty is coming from the private sector. He, he's a businessman. And if you look at their websites, actually, and I encourage anyone to that is planning on voting in the Republican primary to do that, Jeff Deals is, is quite light on policy. It's, it's, it's heavy on endorsements and it's heavy on some of his record from his time on Beacon Hill, but very little in the way of policy. Chris Doty is, is really on the other hand of that. He doesn't necessarily have a ton of endorsements here in Massachusetts. He doesn't have a record of being in political office, but he has extensive policy views. And while the policy views of Deal and Doty are probably not that different Dodie's are outlined in, in great depth in terms of like, what's he wanna do? He wants to make Massachusetts more affordable and he has very specific plans. I don't wanna detail all of them at this point, but if you go on his website, you can check everything from um, from housing to education to jobs and wages and the economy. He has detailed plans of how he is going to make Massachusetts a more affordable state to live in. And so they're they're coming at it from very different angles. deal certainly has more name recognition he has refused to debate Doty because, as people with greater rate name recognition tend to do, they don't want to elevate a more unknown candidate. Doty is pouring a lot of his own money into his campaign. He has far more money on hand, and if you've been watching TV or on the Massachusetts area, you you may have seen ads for Doty, which you're just not going to see from Deal because he doesn't have that kind of money. So it's it's really just two – while they're probably not super different on policy, they're just two very different – people in terms of their styles, both in terms of leading and in terms of campaigning.
0: Yeah. I I think I I feel like by pulling the Republican ballot I was able to do my own version of ranked choice because I feel like my first choice was was already going to move on to the next stage. Um and and I I think I think some healthy debates between someone like Doty and Healy will actually be interesting. Whereas I mean, I I recall Jeff Deal's can, uh, candidacy for Senate, and it was a lot like you know the tr- the Trump style of just like I'm going to go out there say whatever I want. I'm not going to wait for any responses because I don't actually care what the responses are, and <clears throat> and that to me is like foundationally not not productive and. And I feel like even if you are a Republican or you believe in in a lot of like conservative types of policies that are more whatever hands off government, I think there are I think, you know, wanting to have a candidate that's going to like articulately advocate for some of those things against somebody who's obviously going to be more progressive. I feel like that benefits everybody. Agreed. And if Doty does win and he can have some of those debates with Healy and she
2: has to tack a little bit more to the right to a little bit back more to the center. And Doty if he can get up to like the mid 40s and percentage of votes, that tells Healy a little bit that like, look, maybe her most progressive policies are not overwhelmingly favored by the state. Again, that's I think that's really good. And that's something that Republicans, moderate Republicans in the state have long been arguing where it's like it's better to be in there. And like being able to shape policy when we had, remember when we had Nikaela Chinaswamy on a while ago and she was like, she's super moderate Republican. She was like, I'd rather just be in the room and move people a little bit to the right and knock off some of the fringe progressive stuff than just to be ideologically pure and not get elected at all and not have a chance to shape policy in the least. And that's certainly my hope from it. Um, I do want to briefly talk about the Democratic race for attorney general. Just because it's like a fascinating split amongst like the big names in terms of endorsements in the race. So, again, it's Andrea Campbell, who people in Massachusetts will probably remember. She was a Boston City Council. Well, I guess I should back it up. She went to Princeton and then um, UCLA Law and then worked as a lawyer here in Massachusetts. She actually worked, as I was looking at her bio, she worked for the Ed Law Project which I interned at last summer, which was kind of cool to me. And But then she went into private practice at a big law firm here in Boston. And then she was Governor Deval Patrick's, one of his legal counsels. And so did a lot of work legally with different like metropolitan planning areas before she ran for city council in Boston City Council in 2015. She was a city councillor until 2020 when she ran for a mayor of Boston. She came in third in that race originally, so didn't make the final runoff. And now she's running for attorney general. Shannon liss Reardon was a new name to me. Um, she is someone that has worked in private practice her entire career. Her career has been in plaintiff law, which means she's been suing big corporations. She touts that she has uh, argued and won six cases in front of the mass uh, Supreme Judicial Court. In all of those cases, we're on behalf of, quote unquote, the little guy who's fighting against these big corporations. So th- those are like the the two candidates. And what's interesting is, if I saw this headline the other day, it's not often you find Elizabeth Warren and Ayanna Pressley on opposite sides of an issue. And so in terms of endorsements right now, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Mayor Michelle Wu, and former acting mayor Kim Janey all endorsed Shannon Liss Reardon. And on the other hand, you have... Um, Senator Ed Markey, uh, Representative Ayanna Pressley, Attorney General Mara Healey, who have all endorsed Andrea Campbell, and so it's just like super interesting. It's it's split the mayors, it's split the state representatives, it's split the attorney general on one side and the Boston mayor on the other side. It's uh, again, there's not massive policy differences between these two women. They are both they're going to be quote progressive prosecutors, but the race itself I find quite fascinating.
0: Yeah, I I didn't I did not actually know um, that much about the difference in the in the in the endorsements. I wonder I wonder where that comes from. Do you have any
2: further insight? Well, I mean, I don't have I I don't know, but I think there is some that like with Wu and Janie, they just campaigned against Campbell. They might not have loved how that campaign went, so there's a little personal like animosity there on on one side. Also, Shannon looks weird and. Liz Reardon, was someone that has a lot of her own money. I think I, when I first started seeing ads for her on TV, I was like, who is this one? But she is she is pouring a ton of her own money into this campaign. I think she's poured $3 million of her own money into it. And I believe that she has given heavily to Elizabeth Warren's campaigns in the past. And so I think there's a little, um, you know, scratch your back here, you scratch mine. Um, but I think uh, on the other end, um, for Ayanna Presley, like she is someone that, she and Andrea Campbell are both, you know, women of color from Boston. And I think that there's, there's some things that, that make sense there. Um, yeah. I guess I don't have all the answers there, but I do think some of those like below the line factors are a little interesting.
0: Yeah. It, I mean, it is um, well always nice to have insights of a former political insider such as yourself, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it is, it's definitely interesting in in these types of races in states that lean very heavily in one direction or the other, where the yeah the policy differences at least in in on paper are going to be very very uh, limited. Um, yeah, we'll be interested to see yeah you know, uh, kind of how how this plays out. Obviously, more Healy has been a very active um, attorney general for Massachusetts doing a, a lot of, uh, a lot of national lawsuits as well as, uh, as well. well as- certainly that, that could be
2: a criticism of her as well is that she has decided to become more she, during her tenure. She's been far more involved on the federal level suing the president, the Trump administration in particular, than she has been rooting out issues here in the state. I think you could certainly take that both ways, but.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I don't know if you know too much about like sort of the history of attorneys general. Um just in the I mean in in recent mind, when I hear about like the active AGs, I'm I mostly think about uh right-leaning ones suing the Obama administration. So like Scott Pruitt from Oklahoma, that was like his whole thing was just suing the EPA to try and get them out of stuff. And then eventually he became head of the EPA, but like, <laughs> uh, it, it, it feels like that has been a role for the attorneys for different attorneys, generals in these States that are like very heavily that heavily lean in one direction or the other. Is that, has that always been the case? That's fair. But I think on the other hand, another AG
2: that we both probably know is like Ken Paxton down in Texas, and you pro- we probably don't know him because of suing the federal government, although I'm sure he's done his share of that. We know him for policies that he has implemented in Texas in terms of how he's going to enforce the law. And so I think those policies are maybe more eye-catching, particularly up here, where we're like, oh, my God, like that's what the attorney general is doing. Where maybe down in other parts of the country, they look at someone like Shanlis Reardon, who said that she would be in favor of allowing like supervised drug sites for example, right, Like she would tell, she would tell her law enforcement, we are not going to prosecute people who are going to supervise injection sites. Like, maybe if you're down in Texas, you're looking at that, you're like, that's the the Attorney General's just not enforcing like drug laws. Like, those are the type of things where like, you can have like real legitimate policy impacts in your state.
0: Yeah, I feel like, uh, well, maybe we'll bring your, your buddy from Florida back in at some point. Cause I think DeSantis has been doing some very interesting stuff down in Florida with people who, who he deems not to be doing their jobs the way he uh, people I'm ta- like I'm glad that we recorded
2: that DeSantis episode because I feel like in a year's time, we're going to just have to go back and just like play clips. We're going to have to do like an updated version if, and when he decides to run for president, but yeah, he's, he's a wild man down there.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, it has been go fun, vote. yeah. Go, if you live yeah. in
2: Massachusetts, go vote. You can do it in person early this
0: next week, and uh, primary day is a week from today, yeah. And yeah, make sure you're uh, you make sure you're registered and where you're registered and and all that good stuff. But it is well worth well worth your time as i think as we know here in massachusetts maybe this time around not so much but in general a lot of these elections are decided or you know the outcome of the election is decided in the primary and only i don't know a much smaller portion of people vote during primaries than do during the general so um in general it's the place to really get uh get your voice out there till next time buddy see ya
1: We stay up all night On Garner Avenue Debating All the issues Of the day No agenda Not yet Talking heads running around till we forget Where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some mornings left your ego Bruised but what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share On that American idea Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a ram Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the some mornings let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give by used to find an occasion a, a lion's head and folks of different minds because though we didn't share opinions, we shared an American ideal. Friends made all the arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster because though Main Street may not sell. Full of foes just like you and me When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you'll leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give For hope I used to find And chase the lion's head Folks of different minds, because though we did not share opinions, we share on that American ideal. Friends made all arguments, and a an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of Lions Head. Folks of different minds, because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Transmade arguments
0: In an early
1: morning buzz I need an early morning
2: buzz